Hello and welcome to the Ludicast, the home of serious fun. We're brought to you by Ontario Tech University's Ludic Pedagogy Lab. I'm your host, Rich Little, college instructor and Ludic Lab Fellow. For more information about Ludic Pedagogy and the associated instructional tools, visit our website at www.ludicpedagogy.com. Our guest today is Tim Smythe. Tim is a high school teacher with over 20 years experience and holds a reading specialist degree. He also works with the United States Department of Education in a program teaching educators around the globe how to use comics and graphic novels in the classroom. His book, Teaching with Comics and Graphic Novels, Fun and Engaging Strategies to Improve Close Reading and Critical Thinking in the Classroom, is available now. You can find more about the fantastic things Tim is doing inside and outside the classroom by following the links on our episode description. Hi, Tim. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Richard. It's great to be here. You are super passionate about teaching with comics and graphic novels, but you didn't start doing it until you were about 15 years into your career. Before we get into some of the granular details about what you do in the classroom, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with comics and your journey as a teacher? Uh, So my relationship began with G.I. Joe and Transformers number one. They were the first books that I read. And I read them all the way through high school and and, uh, took a little bit of a break in college, got away from them a little bit. But I I loved hip-hop. I grew up in Philadelphia. I loved hip-hop and comic books. But back when I was a kid, like, we didn't talk about comic books because you would have gotten picked on and beat up. And, you know, um, now we're in an age where my kids are proud to call themselves nerds and we have all this stuff. So it's so wonderful to see it all change. And then when I first started teaching, I just did everything by the book and I was really kind of... Um, had high expectations, which I still do, but, um, I never would have dreamed of using comics in the classroom. Um, and so it was through having my own children. It was through some experiences in my own classroom that the light bulb started to go off. And so it's why I love talking to education majors now in colleges, because I wish somebody had told me these things when I was first starting out. And I think my whole career would have been a lot, a lot different. Yeah. I, I think, I think a lot of us of a certain age have that relationship with comics. I know, uh, I certainly did. It wasn't something that you, uh, necessarily talked about a lot with your friends. And I should stop right now and mention to our listeners that we do have a guest host today because, uh, Tim teaches high school. We have, uh, my daughter, Rowan Little, who's 13 years old, is, has, uh, joined. She has some questions for Tim and we'll, we'll get to that. But, um, getting, getting back to that, I remember, uh, running to the, to the, to the, you know, five and dime or whatever it was when I got my allowance and, you know, the new comics would come out. And then I think you had, in one of the things that I had read, I think you had said that in your, when you were doing your graduate level work, um, you brought up comics. That's kind of, is that where the, the kind of the idea was maybe percolating in your brain? But then that, that discussion when you finally came out and said, well, what are you, I think the story was, what do you, you were asking people what they were having their students read? Yeah. So I went back to school to be a reading specialist because my son, who um, is now a current ninth grader, was termed a reluctant reader in kindergarten. Um, and so he kind of gave up on school. That's a whole other story. But it was comics that really gave him the confidence and the love to read. And I said, all right, let's go back to grad school. I want to get my reading specialist degree. And I'm a high school social studies teacher, so I was the only non-elementary school teacher in the entire program. They didn't know what to do with me. The idea is like, right, like we don't teach reading in high school. And I was the only male in the entire program. And so so that was it. They were giving me studies that were saying that boys don't like to read. Um, And I started saying, well, what are you having them read? And I said, well, I don't like to read some of those stories either. Not that this is a male or female thing, but it was a unique perspective. And the other students in my cohort were like, okay, it was my professors who said, go for it, do the research, do the, and this was back in the mid 2000s where there wasn't a lot of research out there just yet on this type of a thing. And I went up giving my presentation. I wrote my, my dissertation, my paper on it. And so whenever I get, would get pushback, uh, including from my own district initially, and they asked if I had any research on comics and education, I just hand people my my paper and I say, "Why, why yes, I do." <laughs> Boom! Here you go. Right. And once they had the research, where that was the uh, pushback gone, or did you still get some pushback from, I guess, parents or administration? Was it reluctant? Did they allow you to do it reluctantly, or did you just say, "Let's let's do it"? It was more. And again, it's not that they're against it. I think it's this not understanding, and I think it's this, you know, that. 
superhero books are just capes and types and they're superficial and they're all these things. And so people who have never read a comic don't understand. And the United States is one of the only countries in the world where we have such a stigma against comic books. Well, um, I'm going to say Canada a little bit as well. Uh, yeah. The story you told about grad school really resonated with me because I went to a Canadian um, graduate school for my for my master's degree. And I remember the first day we were doing icebreakers. And uh, I have a love-hate relationship with with icebreakers and, and and by that we're audio only but uh shaking your head so i think you probably have the same and we were put on the spot we were asked to uh to share the i guess the most compelling business book um that we had read now this was uh late 80s so lots of you know the art of war sun tzu and the prince machiavelli and uh, leadership secrets of attila the hun and <laughs> And so I was kind of on the spot. I was, uh, you know, for my first time and it was in Toronto. So big city. I'm a, I'm a small town prairie kid. So I was overwhelmed to begin with. And I'm a reader, but, uh, was put on the spot and I kind of blanked, right? Here's all these people that I, I figured were, were much more accomplished than I was. And the only thing I could think of was my favorite savage, savage sword of Conan issue, which was number 132. And so I just blurted that out and laughter all around. <laughs> and, and, and I was, I was uh, kind of under, um, I guess I flew under the radar after that because I was, I was the guy who wrote, who read the comic books, right? So I think we can, both of us can, can probably talk a little bit more about that, but let's back up for a second because there is that, that, that hesitancy about, you know, comics are not, they don't equal, uh, literature. But just for anyone who's not, for our listeners who maybe aren't really familiar with comics and graphic novels, can you talk a little bit about how they're a reflection of our culture and, you know, societal issues that are dealt with more and more? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people who complain about comics being too political today, comic books have always been political, as has Star Trek and Star Wars and all the things that, you know, us nerds know. But yeah, comic books come out every Wednesday. Well, DC comes out on Tuesday now, but they come out once a week. And so, like, I talk a lot about um, our kids read um, Mary Shelley Frankenstein in 10th grade. And so I talk about the impact of the Industrial Revolution and how, you know, what's going on around us impacts our pop culture. And Frankenstein is certainly pop culture. I know in language arts teachers are going to kind of, you know, wrinkle their nose at that a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, we see – I'm just trying to think of some examples. Um, and, in fact, this is where I started bringing comics into my classroom when Miles Morales came out for the first time. And so if you don't know, you know, Miles Morales is biracial. And so I had a black student in my classroom who was quiet and we just didn't really have a super strong relationship. And I happened to just mention that, hey, you know, Miles Morales and, and this kind of thing. And he came up after class to talk to me for the first time. And he was more impressed that our president, Obama, um, I'm sorry, he was more impressed that Spider-Man looked like him than the fact that we had a black president. Right. <laughs> and it, it puts you back in that perspective of being a child, of being a teenager and what what heroes mean to us. And so I just kind of took that and, and ran. And then we had um, Sam Wilson, you know, as Captain America, you know, nice. and we started we started changing all these things up. And now we've got superheroes that are you know, biracial and, and trans and, and gay and Latino and Puerto Rican and all these kinds of things. Um, and they talk about, I've got comics in my classroom with Ronald Reagan in them. I've got um, uh, Superman, um, Red Sun, when he crash lands in Soviet Russia. And we, so, yeah, it's all these things, um, just like you would read in People magazine, Time magazine, um, on CNN website or whatever it might be. It is very much reflected in, in what's going on. And the last one I'll say about that is uh, the one that I use in my classroom is uh, Jim Zub wrote a Champions comic. And Champions is probably my, my favorite superhero team. And there was a, a school shooting at Miles Morales' high school. And so I went and bought a class set of those. And it was a much easier way to talk about those types of issues in my classroom than showing a news clip, than showing a, you know, it was a much um, more disarming uh, kind of a way to talk about a very serious topic. And so when I, whenever I go to the comic book store, when I'm looking at comics, that's what I'm looking for. What are these things that I can use in my classroom to introduce tough topics? Right. Rowan, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I'm curious. And since I've never ever had to talk about like the school shootings outside of the, oh, this happened. How often do you have to talk about that in your classroom? 
Uh, well, in the United States, we have, and again, I have three kids in, in schools too. Um, every year we have a drill to kind of, it, we call it a run, hide, fight drill, whatever it might be. And we try to prepare our students that if this were to happen, I mean, that's the reality of where we are in my country right now. Um, and so this topic comes up every single year. And if something does happen and it is on the news, I'm not the kind of teacher who ignores it. So I think if we ignore it, whether it's a racial issue, a violent, what, our, I think our, our, our silence speaks for us to our, to our kids. And they're like, oh, well, this teacher doesn't care about this topic. So at a minimum, once a year before we have the drill, I use the comic book. But unfortunately, it's, it's usually several times a year that we talk about this in my classroom. So that, that, I think that's, that's interesting in the sense that when we talk about making a hard turn here to fun, um, yeah. that's what ludic, <laughs> that's what ludic pedagogy is about is really, though, fun is a proxy for engagement. And so what you're talking about is building that bridge and getting the students interested in the topic. And I've got a quote here that I'm going to read that you probably know quite well, I'm assuming. And I want you to talk a little, if if you would, talk a little bit about how it informs your teaching. And so the quote goes like this. But it seems to me that comics are, on the one hand, a very direct medium. They come across very viscerally. And on the other hand, they're a very abstract medium. You have to do a lot more work to decode a comic strip than you do in understanding a film or even even reading a book. And that's Art Spiegelman. Is that is that quote resonate with you in terms of how you teach and and why you use comics and graphic novels? Yeah, a hundred hundred percent. Because I, and again, the people who don't know about comics and visual literacy don't understand how much more challenging it is to read a comic. In fact. When I, when we read comics for the first time, my highest level readers are usually the ones who struggle the most because in a lot of cases they've never read a comic before and they don't understand that those pages without the words on them, you can't just skip them because in fact they're usually the most important parts of a comic, uh, and the splash pages and things like that. But like what happens in the gutter between panels? If you're reading a prose book, it, the author literally tells you and then this happens. But when you're reading a comic, you're making a jump from panel one to panel two, and the reader has to make all that up in their mind. We also have very few words that we can use um, in a comic because you only have so much space. And then to I always use like the example of like representation in a panel in comic books, and you can see kids in wheelchairs or somebody with a hijab or somebody with whatever it might be all going on in the background. And if you were to describe that in a prose book, that might be three pages of text. But in a comic, you really have to slow down. And so that translates into annotating poems, annotating songs, um, annotating a letter from George Washington, or taking apart a political cartoon and really paying attention to what's going on. And then that ties directly into media literacy and how advertisements are targeting our young people and what they should be looking out for. And my comic book readers are the strongest with these skills. It's a it's a gateway into critical thinking then, isn't it? Yes. And, and as a parent, as, as you are, I, I think the, the streaming services are fantastic. With the one exception, which you hit on here, and, and Rowan, Rowan might punch me in the shoulder here, but when you are streaming something, you can scrub ahead. And so I find that even Rowan will scrub ahead quickly to get to the next thing. Well, you can't, you can't scrub ahead in a comic book because you'll, you'll miss something. So one thing that, that brings me to then again is when we talk about vocabulary, and I think that's one of the things that uh, people assume if they don't read comic books, that the vocabulary isn't at a high enough level. And I think you've, I, and I, I think you've done some studies or you have some, uh, some data on that. The vocabulary in comics is actually higher than most people think, isn't it? Yeah. I was trying to find the, it's in my phone somewhere, but yeah, we find that, uh, the studies that have been done, there's higher level vocabulary in comics than in adult, uh, literature. And so it's been proven out. And I know, I imagine you have the same kind of conversations at the dinner table, like the words that come out of my children's mouth, that they understand this higher level of vocabulary because of the high interest comic books and things like that. Absolutely. And and I know that Rowan, uh, quite often, she'll, she'll throw out the odd word. And I know where it came from. <laughs> yep. it, it, it came from uh, uh, an issue of a Marvel comic book, usually. What's that? Uh, so that so we'll, we'll we're going to have to edit this this bit out, Tim. But I am um, unfortunately very quickly when Rowan, what was the first comic you ever read? Uh, I think it was like a uh, Marvel Spider-Man. Marvel Spider-Man. So so very quickly, Rowan's 
um, understanding and uh, recall of comics and the and the multiverse far outpaces mine. So uh, quite often, uh, if, taken to movies. Uh, yes, I've been told that 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 I can't go to any more movies, or if I do, I can't ask questions. Um, like at the end when they do the three or four clips at the end, yeah. I'm not allowed to ask how why is that important. I, I get the same. I get the disappointing look, like I let my kids down because I didn't know the answer. And sometimes students too. They're like, I, like I'm supposed to be the like know it all of everything nerdy. I'm like, it's impossible to know everything. So I, I feel your pain. Yeah, thank you. Um, and Rowan actually has three, it, three, three issues given to her by uh, Keith Edmonds, who's the co-author of Ludic Pedagogy. Um, Marvel, what do they call the encyclopedia? The handbook. Yes. So, um, yeah. So, and I think she doesn't need it anymore. It's in her head. Um, so <laughs> let's, um, let's tra- transition back to the, to the, to the podcast. Can, can you give us a kind of a specific example? You've kind of alluded to it earlier in terms of annotating poems and things, but can you give us a specific example of how you would use a comic or a graphic novel in the classroom, like a lesson that you do? So going back to the fun aspect, I, I want to change the way students are introduced to school. So again, the way I used to be, and I wish I could go back to my younger self and just kind of shake them. I used to hand out the textbook and all the, you know, here's why you must fear me rules, like the first day of school and set the tone. And, you know, they're not supposed to let me, they're not supposed to see me smile until Christmas. Like that's how I was brought into teaching. Now when the kids come in, and it was terrifying the first year I did it, I just have out piles of comics on the tables. And they're comics from different uh, decades. So I'll go to like the dollar bin at uh, flea markets, at the comic book store. So I'll buy reader copies from the 1960s and 70s and 80s. And so I'll put out, you know, traditional Thor. And then I'll put out um, one of my favorite superheroes, Jane Foster's Thor. Or I'll put out She-Hulk and, you know, and um, what's his name now, Braun, the, the Korean Hulk and things like that. And I have the students uh, analyze them as cultural artifacts. And so I don't know the kids' names yet. I don't know any of that stuff. And my room is, like, so loud because the kids are shouting across the room and they're yelling at things. And some of the kids don't get it right away. So then we pause and we go back and say, okay, go back and take a look at the advertisements. How much do things cost? The video game system. Do they have one button or do they have 12 buttons? Uh, how are women treated? How What's the representation? And now all of a sudden... It's not so it's about the comics and they leave my classroom and they're still talking about my classroom. They get emails from parents and, you know, uh, parents who want to come in and see my classroom because the kids are so excited about it. But then it, it translates into history isn't just somebody who like some great person from 500 years ago. It's about all the things that are happening around us all the time. And so we need to talk about music and TV shows and movies and all those things, because that's why I love teaching social studies. It's It's literally everything. And so from that first day, I think, for one thing, it's that kind of a classroom experience where my son would have needed to feel more included in the classroom, where I would have needed that to feel more included in the classroom. Unlike what you were saying, and I've been through this too, where, you know, the educated elites, you know, they're trying to set the tone and intimidate people with the things that they know. It's a lot more accessible. And for the first time, you know, these kids are 15 years old. They've never had a comic book in a classroom. And it just, it's, it's a whole different mindset. I bet uh, I bet they're shocked when they when they walk in the room for the for the first day. But setting expectations is important, but also that that they belong there, right? Right. I mean, it's it's tough, especially the first day. New new teacher. I don't care whether you're going into graduate level work or whether you're going into tenth uh, grade. It's it's it can be very intimidating. And yeah. the first thing is is no, you belong here, and uh, we can do this. And here's something that will you know be fun. One of my favorite quotes came from Allison James, who, who's done lots of research on, on fun in the classroom. And it says, uh, making something fun doesn't mean people aren't smart enough to do it the old way. Right. And, and, and that's how I started as well. But one of the things that I try and think of, which I think you're doing as well, is, you know, think like the student. Don't think for them because they need to develop their, their skills. So you need to find that way in for engagement. And that's why. Um, ludic pedagogy is is what kind of drew drew me to this idea of we need to be we need to be having fun, um, and that and that's a brilliant way to put it um, because like for instance the first essay my students write for me I and it's a six I, I'm not I mean trust me we're doing like college level research papers I've taught through the University of Pennsylvania like I, I have really high expectations and sometimes people think oh this is the comic book teacher and he has like it's it's yeah. a silly class it's those those kind of things but 
the first essay they write for me is a Star Wars comic where it's written it's, it's written by Jason Aaron from the Stormtroopers' point of view. And it's about how the Stormtroopers bringing order, bringing law and order, bringing those sorts of things had saved people on chaotic planets. And so the simple prompt is, are Stormtroopers good or evil? And the students go through, they read the comic, and they annotate each page, and they use that evidence to then write this full-blown essay. And the kids are, like, yelling at each other, no, 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 this is what this this is what this is panel means. No, 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 that's what this panel means. And then the nerd in the back will say, yeah, but this Stormtrooper has a green lightsaber, so he's got to be a good guy. Like, you know, all these things, and even for the kids who know nothing about Star Wars, it just opens up a different aspect to all that. And so now they're not worried about Genghis Khan. They're not worried about memorizing it dates. They're having this fun. And for me, I'm laughing because I'm getting a six-paragraph essay out of them, and they want to do it. It's almost like a competition. They're screaming and yelling about it. My classroom is loud a lot of times, which is a whole other thing. Like, just because, like, when you come in and get observed, and your classroom is always silent and always quiet, and, like, that's not necessarily that you're – not that there's anything wrong. You know, we have quiet days, too. But loud doesn't mean that you're not learning. It doesn't mean that you're not doing what you need to be doing. Yeah, I love that because one of the things that we're talking about in ludic pedagogy is that that fun doesn't mean you have to sacrifice academic rigor. The other thing with fun is it it's a motivator, so it drives you to do it more, and then it starts to take, which it sounds like is happening in that particular lesson, students start to care less about the grade and more about the learning. So if they're arguing back and forth and your, cl- your classroom is loud, and they're having to annotate and explain and, and I guess justify to their to their classmates on why their position is a valid position. That's that's awesome. Yeah. How do you how do you um, how do you assess that? So you've got an essay coming out of that. Yeah. So that that's how I assess them. And the the outcome of all this is so we use a couple of wordless comics. We use Nat Turner by Kyle Baker, um, The Arrival by Sean Tan. Like there's some, and my honor students particularly, they want to give me the right answer. They want to impress me. They want to get the A. And they struggle a little bit with these lessons because my response is always, I don't, there's no right answer here. You could come up with five different interpretations of what happened in the story. And it's the same with historians. Like we don't know a hundred percent why Louis the 14th did this. We don't know. And that's hard for them to accept sometimes. And then as the year goes on, suddenly now their opinion matters as long as they can back it up with evidence. And that's how I assess that essay. And then we start talking about transitional sentences. We start talking about how do you have a thesis statement? How do you have a good opening sentence? All those types of things that come so that when we get to the traditional essay on, you know, the Cold War, they're, they're, they know all those skills. They're integrated and they remember it because they've made those connections because they've had fun. And that I, I love getting those emails from college students. Oh, I, I remember this in Western Civ because of that song you played. Or I remember we read that comic about this topic or we played that card game about the French Revolution. And that's those connections are what we want to make. So the 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 comic or the graphic novel, is that the entry and then you follow that up with a more structured lesson on like you're using textbooks? What other kind of learning tools do you use in the classroom? Yeah. So I use a textbook and I know there's lots of folks who have moved away from textbooks. My concern with that is, you know, I don't want my students' first experience with a textbook being in college. And I teach how to read a textbook. And I think we need to do that in college, too. So, yeah, we use textbooks. We use open uh, resources. A lot of times we connect with uh, classrooms in other countries. So we do things like we'll do Padlet exchanges and Zoom conversations. And we can't overlook the importance of student creation, too. My students will do research. For instance, they'll read the March graphic novels, which is about John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis's life during the Civil Rights Movement. And then they'll do research on a modern civil rights issue, and they'll create a comic book about that. So it's student choice. It might be women's rights. It might be mental disability. It might be – I've had ones done on social anxiety. I have all these types of things. And then the students create an annotated works cited page. They do uh, statistics and research. But then they create a comic book with it. So that, that part of – it's not always me providing the resources. Sometimes it's me turning it over to the students and saying – like I had one, one time a student, we were doing the Middle Ages, and we did a research paper on castles. And then the students, you know, to have fun, we also built – uh, models of castles. So we used Plato, we used wood and things like that. And I had a kid say, can I use Minecraft? And my initial reaction was like, no, you can't use Minecraft. That's not as much work as, and I didn't know anything about Minecraft. And something in the back of my head said, you know what, let them do it. 
It was the most amazing thing I have ever seen. This kid put months into this, and you were able to walk through every room. And, you know, there's, like, the random sheep running through, and that, like, which is fun. But it was a good lesson for me that, you know, here's here's my assignment. And so now I always say to the kids, unless you can pitch me a different way to do it and tell me what you're going to do, why you're going to do it that way, I've had students create songs. I've had students do interpretive dance. I've had students bring in, like, six uh, musical instruments and play for us. And and then other students write the traditional essay. Or other, And, you know, there's times where the assignment is what it is. And I have to say, no, we're all writing the essay because you need those skills, too. So I, I'm never saying, and I think people get upset sometimes when they're like, oh, he's, he's throwing everything out and just using comic books. No, it's just one tool and it's one aspect. And we try to hit every student's interest at least once as we go through all these types of things. Um, students share songs with me all the time. Um, and I say, you know, I'm a high school, you know, I'm 48 years old. If there's some curses in your song, like, we're, we're good, we're fine. And even that release, like, they're like, okay. And then I'll talk to them or I'll respond to them about the songs that they shared with me and how it resonated with me. And, oh, now it changed my playlist. And if I can, I'll play those songs in the classroom. And having a kid who hasn't felt seen or hasn't felt heard, and they hear their song playing when they come into the classroom, like, it's a really powerful moment. I bet. And one of the, one of my favorite things, and, and I think we shared this a little bit, I, I quite often will use, uh, what I call walk-up music. So the first, at the, at the start of the class, I'll put a music video on. Um, one of the courses I teach is microeconomics. And so one of the things I do is, is one of the ones recently I put, um, uh, the Rolling Stones. You can't always get what you want. Nice. And yeah, but sometimes, right? If, if you try, sometimes you, you find that you get what you need. And then that, that's the discussion prompt is, so it's not just to play the music because it helps people. They come in and, um, I want them to think about how does that connect to what we're going to talk about. So if they've done the pre-work and even if they haven't done the pre-work, they should be able to tie that together. So the first discussion prompt is, well, how, how, how would this help describe the market system? That's great. And what I was struck by when I think I saw, cause you're very active on social media and I think I saw your playlist or the introduction to the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that I really get a, a charge out of is every once in a while, and, and, and if you're a, if you're actively asking for it, you'll get more than I will. But every once in a while, I get a student that e- emails me a link to a song, and will say, "Hey, you know, look at this. I think this ties into whatever topic." And that's the best thing. That's like that's yes. like Christmas, right? Because you you've you've connected somehow, and they've also felt comfortable enough to do to do that. But so that kind of leads me to my next question is how much extra work, and I'm assuming there's extra work, goes into teaching the way you teach now versus teaching the way you used to teach. I probably don't want to think about this because it's probably a lot of a lot of work, but I'm not sure. Yeah, no. and And that's a conversation I have with education majors who want to do this. And I said, you can't make the mistake of just. All you're going to do is comics or all you, like, you've got to do, you've got to get your feet wet. You've got to, you know, you've got to set a reputation for yourself. I think if I had tried this my first year of teaching, I don't know that I would have gotten as much support, but I had already had, you know, years of being a, a, a hard teacher, of having a teacher with high expectations, of doing all the quote unquote real work. But it, yes, it is extra work, but I've had years of lesson plans under my belt. I've had years of experience. And so doing these things, it's not as much extra work as it would be if I was a new teacher. Um, and so there's that. But it's also, it's, I like to read comic books on the weekend. I like to read comic books during the week. And so as I'm reading, I'm just making myself little notes. So a lot of times it's not that hard or that much extra work. And sometimes it's as simple as taking one panel uh, from like a Batman comic. There was a, a Batman comic where he was dealing with Black Lives Matter, and, and he was in between the police and the protesters and trying to decide what side to come in on. And I just put the one panel up on the smart board. And when the kids came in, my my literal do now prompt was discuss. And so 15 minutes later, I'm not the one who has to say, here's these statistics. Here's the violence that's going on. Here's all these awful things. Instead, again, I put it back on the students. And in that case, actually, it makes it easier because then I'm just going around to the tables of different students and I'm sitting and talking with them and I'm just going with the flow. And that's, that's hard to, to do as a teacher is to let go of that control because we're all control freaks as teachers. It's just who we are. But I would say since I've learned how to do that, 
it's interesting, the question you just asked me, I think it actually makes my teaching easier, um, to be honest. Yeah, well, it, it certainly, I think, when you can bring some of yourself into the classroom, and it sounds to me, um, we did an episode with uh, a gentleman from uh, Dawson College in Montreal, and he's a big active learning enthusiast, and one of the things that really resonated with me, he said, I need to move away from being the center of attention. I need to be at the center of the classroom, which yep. sounds like what you're doing. Then I can then I can interact with students as they need me. I can call a timeout if I need to because the whole class is the whole class has maybe gone off off the rails a little bit. Or I can stop everyone and say, "Wow, look at what these guys are doing!" Right? Where? How did you come up with that? And that does it's. I think it's harder to do. Simply because I guess the first time you do it, it, it can become very, it's very scary. Yeah. Because you've got to give up that, that, that control. And so I think one of the things that's come out of the podcast is when, when we ask, when I ask a guest, what advice would you give to people, um, who want to try and do, whether it's just fun, whether it's teaching maybe that, that avenue is with comics or graphic novels is start small and, yeah. and build your toolbox because it, it, I can't imagine it's risky enough when you when you first start doing this that if you tried to change wholesale it would uh, it would be a disaster. Yeah, yeah, and and that that too. Like I have lots of students, myself included, as a fellow introvert, somebody who's riddled with social anxiety. Like I'm not the kid who's going to raise my hand in class. My son's not the kid who's. But and and in your mind, like you want to share these things, but you won't do it in a large group. But when you allow those small group discussions to happen. When as a teacher, you just kind of sit down and like, hey, guys, what do you and it's a much more human rather than this giant scale. I find that I get reactions from every one of my students where if I'm just standing in the front of the classroom and asking for volunteers, I'm just hearing from the same five people. Yeah, absolutely. It 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 and it's tough sometimes to get away from that uh, because it is easier a little bit if if you've got very interactive students. It sometimes it's the siren call of why well, I think I'm doing a good job because those students are really interested, but we forget about the introverts. That's where the really well considered uh, responses come from. I'm going to flip it over just a minute uh, to Rowan. I know she's got some questions and I don't want to forget because here we go, right? I'm, I'm dominating the, I'm in control, I'm <laughs> in control, dominating the discussion. So we'll, we'll throw it over to Rowan and see she's been taking notes too. So you go ahead. Um, is there like a subject or like a grade level? Because my class is always, we've got um, reading buddies with the kindergartners. Oh, great. I'm thinking, well, it'd be cool, but there's no way they'd understand this. It'd be, well, how do you bridge this um, topic in like a comic book with a younger grade level? So is there like a subject or a grade level that you wouldn't consider teaching with comics? No, um, no. I mean, pre-K through university to adults, there, there's something for every grade level. But we, we do something similar at our school where we have the older kids meet with some of the younger kids. And what we've actually done is the older kids take a difficult topic and they make it into a comic book. And then they bring the comic book over to the younger kids. And they're so excited to see comics. And we leave them in black and white. And so the younger kids can color them in. And so they're actively engaged or asking questions. And it's not just good for the younger kids, but for my older kids, when you teach something, you learn it better. And so by them making these materials, they understand the material that much better. And it really is just such an awesome experience. So, no, I I would not shy away from using comics at any level, although we know that there's comic books that are geared towards adults. right? So there's an age type things. Certainly, we, we we wouldn't use that in first grade, but um, as a medium, as comic books or graphic novels, no, they're appropriate for any any age level. Another thing that you brought up is in kindergarten about like the reluctant reader. I'm just thinking, would that be like helping with stuff? Like, I know uh, uh, our vice principal, and it's interesting because our school has never had a vice principal before. He's very engaging, and he really likes comic books. And one and the first day that he, we ever met him. He said, well, I really like comic books because in like this grade, um, there was like these birds and there was like these birds. And if you really liked to read, you were these. And then you were like a bad reader if you were the other group. And one teacher sat down with us and gave us comic books. And now you can go into his office and there's comic books and he'd be like, oh, uh, let's give you this. 
So would that be like something that could like pique interest into comics? Or? Ah, I, I wish I had a vice principal um, like yours growing up. I mean, that that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, there's a great story I, I love. Uh, Andrew Iden, who co-wrote the March graphic novels, he wrote about how his English teacher would take his comic books away from him because they weren't real reading. So now here's this guy who has won the National Book Award, who has won all these awards, who's done all these things, and he was asked to come back to his school to do a talk, and that same teacher was there. And, you know, again, you know, you want to say, oh, this teacher was mean. I, I just think it's a she didn't understand um, and wasn't educated in those types of things. So your vice principal is doing that work for everybody. And in a role of leadership, he's not just doing it for the kids. I'm sure he's also giving some of your other teachers that permission to do those things, too. That's that's phenomenal. I'm just going to interrupt for a second. I'm not I want to make sure that I'm from I'm not familiar with that term reluctant reader, Tim. Ah. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that? Because, yeah, so and it really gets me angry. So I always say there's no such thing as a reluctant reader. You just haven't found the right book for that kid yet. So reluctant reader means, uh, for instance, when my son, um, he was being given these Bob board books. I don't know if you've ever, they're the most boring, dry, learning how to read books ever in the world. Um, and he didn't want to read them. And so they say reluctant, and that's like this huge term of there might be a disability, it might be dyslexia, it might be the kid is lazy. It's just this overarching term that really makes me angry that we use, particularly as a reading specialist, because there's no basis, in fact, in that term, reluctant reader. We're not. It's Again, it's just, what are, what are we doing? How do we pivot? What do we try to find for them? Um, it, can we say, okay, so let's do text-to-text. Let's take a topic and have you look at words to music and learn that way, or use a podcast and listen, or whatever it might be. Like For one thing, reading is reading. Whether you're listening to a podcast, that is reading. Whether you're listening to an audio book, that is reading a comic book. So that, that term reluctant reader, I wish we could just, I'm actually glad that you're not familiar with it because it is just such an awful word to throw at a kid. Yeah, I guess it's not that I'm, I'm not familiar with it because I mean, it's, I've heard it before, but I've never really stopped to think about it because my, my first thought is, well, that doesn't make sense. And, and I guess going back, I remember. I think I shared this with you. Uh, my older brother, he's one year older. He's autistic and he was nonverbal for, for eight years. I think it was. He, no, maybe not. Maybe six. And I remember vividly that he would stand up and like most autistic kids, he does some self stem stuff. And my mom caught him in the mirror. Now he was, his name TJ. He would watch, uh, he was an incessant watcher of Sesame Street. And mom saw him in, and he was looking at himself in the mirror, which was not unusual. But all of a sudden she said, wait a minute, there's, there's something going on with what he's, what he's doing with his fingers. Well, he was drawing the alphabet. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so through the magic of Sesame Street, he taught himself to read, but he was, he was nonverbal. And so this was in the early seventies, right? So no real understanding. We still don't understand what, what's going on with, with autism, I think, with any, uh, that's why the spectrum disorder. And so she, I remember she went to the, 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 the educational system at the time. She had a background in education and she tried to tell them as well as the, the medical community that no, my son can read. And she kind of got the pat on the shoulder. Well, Mrs. Little, that's, you know, we all love our kids and we hope that, you know, especially kids that are intellectually challenged and we hope that they can find their place in the world and blah, blah, blah. She said, no, he can, he can read. And finally, I can't remember how she ended up proving it. Uh, she's, she's passed away, but, but it was a situation where, yeah, no kidding. He had taught himself, he had taught himself to read. So there's, you want to talk about a reluctant reader, you know, right. people that thought he couldn't read, taught himself to read, but it's that, that reluctant reader that, that, that got to me, that, that phrase that I wanted a little bit more information on. But yeah, no, I, comments are so powerful, uh, with, um, kids, uh, autistic kids. We know it teaches like facial recognition and emotions and all those things, but uh, we have, I'm lucky enough, we have an autistic support classroom because we know wow. the numbers are, are getting higher. We're not 100% sure why that's happening. And so in my regular ed classroom, um, we include uh, the autistic kids. And so they kind of, the idea is you, know, you kind of send them off in the back with their aid and they listen and stuff, but we included them. 
and we had them create comics. And so they were able to share their voice in a very powerful way. And they actually wrote their own comic. So three of the kids got together and they wrote a comic about modern civil rights during COVID shutdown and how they felt that their civil rights were being taken away because they loved going to the supermarket and, and learning how to shop and learning their jobs. And I mean, there were tears in the classroom when they shared this and claps for the kids. And we put it in the school newspaper and it went out on the school social media. It was such a powerful moment that they're not going to have if your only response is, Write me a six-paragraph essay. Right, absolutely. Throw it back to you, Ron. <laughs> so now that we're talking about, like, oh, comics and these ones are good and this, my class, I'm in French immersion, so it's a really um, delicate um, relationship with, oh, I don't want to read this because I don't understand it. It's in French. I don't want to do that. And then, so if ever you're reading a French book, it's a lot easier to get kids interested in the English book, but there's um, some really old books that we have to read. And this year, my teacher's, uh, uh, he's only been teaching in our school for like two years. So it's really interesting to have to listen to all these kids saying, oh, I don't want to read this. And, oh, I don't want to do this. So is there like a certain, like a comic or a topic where your class is like, I don't want to read this. I don't want to read this old book. I don't want to do anything like that. Um, it, it does happen. I always share the story. I mean, I, I was reading like Stephen King giant novels when I was in middle school. I always loved to read. Um, and when I got to high school, there was a book, uh, Anna Karenina, that just about killed me. It was the most boring soap opera. Like, I just hated it. But my English teacher sat me down and explained, you're, it's not, you're, you're not just going to read everything that you like to read. And if you only did that, what would you understand about the world? And so he kind of helped me to peel back the story a little bit and understand the history in the book. And so while I still never fell in love with it. So anyway, so that's my story. But for my own kids, there there's sometimes where I have students who don't want to have me as a teacher because I'm the comic book teacher and they still have a little bit of snobbery about that. And I I've won over every single student except for one, but it happens. And there's students who hate reading comic books. And so I don't only have them read comic books. We read all kinds of different things. There's kids who hate, my son doesn't really like music. There's kids who hate reading the textbook. There's kids who, and so it's why we need to kind of touch on all these different types of things. But I just remember, so the March graphic novel, this one girl, student was going home and telling her dad how much she hated the class. All we ever do is read comics. So he came in all fired up to kind of, you know, put me in my place. And all I did was I handed him the comic. And he was like, I'm so sorry. This is the most amazing thing I've ever read. I wish my, I'm going to go home and talk to my daughter. And so I never won her over and that's okay because she was a great student. And when we did other things, she was much more involved. And so that's okay. So, but I've never had a particular comic uh, that kids hate reading. Sometimes they struggle a little bit with the comics without words in them because kids, a lot of times in my classroom will say things like, Man, this class is so tough because we have to think in this class. Um, he doesn't just give us the worksheet where you fill in the answers. But it's not that they, there's no any one comic, I don't think. And I, I read in your email, which thank you, you, you kind of mentioned the city of Ember. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so I asked my, my kids about those books. Um, and so we just ordered them. My, my kids are on a, what they call a reading Olympics. It's a extracurricular after school activity where kids across the state read from a book list of books, and then there's a contest where they answer questions and see who can place the highest, and those titles are actually on that book list. <laughs> so now I'm, I, I read the description. They sound absolutely fascinating. I don't know why kids would have a problem with those books, but, again, you never know. Yeah, um, in my class, unfortunately, we're always in a split class because of certain uh, things, and the grade above us had already read the book last year. Ooh. And they hated it, and they had to watch the movie with it. And even I remember our teacher before we started it, he came up to the class and said, "I understand that you don't, that you probably don't want to read this." And he's like, "This is such a bad movie, so I'm just going to give you these uh, prompts, and you can just talk about how bad the movie." But what you said, that teacher, that's pretty powerful that your teacher would allow you guys to then write about what they don't like about it. Because I, I have my students do the same thing. I have them criticize our textbook. I have them criticize, and I'm open-minded. I'm like, you guys can tell me if my lesson sucked. Like, let me know. 
I have no problem. I fail as a teacher. No problem. How can we do it different? And that's real life. When we critique things, I think, again, kids want teachers to like them and they want teachers to, to see the right answer. But sometimes the kids really understand things because they tell you what they don't like about it. That, that's a great teacher that I wish more teachers would do. But my kids, my daughter, seventh grade, they're reading um, Percy Jackson, which we love. And we've oh, actually saw, <laughs> there you go. We, we actually saw the Broadway play. It was fantastic. But we hate the movie. We all hate the movie. And they're going to watch the movie at the end of the week. And she's like, oh, I'm like, you're fine. It's a movie. It's two days out of your life. Like, we'll move on. But, yeah, sometimes that happens. I guess the last thing I wanted to talk about, you, you've written a book about uh, why and what you do in the classroom. What's next? Um, well, my wife and I are, are starting to put together a book now. My wife is an eighth-grade language arts teacher. So we're – it'll be a little bit of comics, but it'll be a lot more of a broader spectrum of the different things that we use uh, in terms of pop culture, but also some of the things we just talked about, um, putting together, you know, how do you get students interested in – you know, Shakespeare, like, you know, all those kinds of things. So we're just kind of putting our heads together. So we'll be writing that over the next year. Um, putting together an article for uh, PBS about why graphic novels are the ones that are being targeted and banned so much right now in the U.S. Um, so why, why is that? What, why do you think that is? Because Arch- <laughs> the, what is it? Is it Mouse was yeah. banned yeah. again? Yeah. So – for one thing, it's an attack on LGBTQ and, and, you know, all that, that's, that there's all that. But it's also, it's when, it, again, I give these talks to uh, education students of, you know, an image can get you in trouble so much faster than a prose book. Because um, in a lot of cases, people aren't going to bother to read a prose book. But you open up a graphic novel to one panel and somebody has a problem with that one panel. So you have to know your district. You have to know your audience. You have to be prepared to defend each and every single panel. And then I also think there is still this stigma, like you were saying, even in Canada, against comics as being real literature. So it's kind of those two things come together. Uh, but some of my friends, some of my authors, like like Jerry Kraft, um, who wrote New Kid and, and um, Class Trip is coming out, um, as a black author, you know, it's this idea that you're trying to make people feel guilty and you're trying to cause problems, all these other issues. So you put together authors that are minority, a visual narrative that people aren't used to and the, just the current politics of all those kind of things. And that some people still believe that you shouldn't have comics in education at all anyway, because there, there's no literary merit to all those right. things. Do you think it's similar to rap music, not being real music when that genre started? Right. Like not being recognized by the Grammys, not all those sorts of things. And so, like I said, I grew up on hip hop. So in my classroom, we listen to hip hop, we annotate hip hop, because it talks very much about the political issues. And so what people will do is they'll say, they'll point out some awful gangster rap, you know, like one of the worst songs, whatever, uh, treating women badly, all that kind of stuff. And they say, see, all rap is bad, right? And it's like, no, 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 no. There's so much positivity in hip hop as political movement. I would never, there's, you know, U.S. country music songs that I can't stand because they're awfully racist, but I don't have a problem with all country music. And so, yeah, it very much, I think those two things come together in, in the same way. Yeah. Friday, this Friday I leave, I'm going to Kansas. Um, I'm their keynote speaker for the, the state uh, social studies conference. And so I'm, I'm terrified as an introvert, but once I get started talking about what I'm passionate about, it just goes like I, I forget about everything and, and I love talking about it. And then it's like, once I'm done talking and I have the one-on-one conversations with people, that's where I start to panic a little bit. But, yeah, it's going to be great. So they're flying me out. They bought a bunch of my books, and I'll be doing a book signing and all. So, and that's the thing, too, like with my book, one of the reasons why I wrote my book, because I share most of what I do for free on my website and all that kind of stuff, is still today having a book kind of gives you more value in education. Even though publishing is, if you blog, if you're on social media, if you're vlogging, if you're doing podcasts, that's all, to me, it's the same as uh, publishing a book. But we still have that idea that that snobbery in education that, oh, okay, well, he's a published author now. Well, I was a published author when I wrote articles. I was a published author, when, right? And so I think we need to move past that. But it does help in that argument moving forward, pushing back against, you know, not having comics in the classroom, because now we can say, well, you know, here's how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many ways to get into a student's 
mind, and it's not just one way. And I think that's kind of human nature, right? We always want the simple answer. Just just do it this way, and that'll cover everything off. But it's it's more than that. You are you, you certainly you're an introvert, but yet you like to get up and speak about what you're passionate about. What what changes there? I have a shirt that says introverted but willing to discuss comics, right? Uh, but uh, talking about hip hop, so one of my favorite hip hop artists, uh, Run DMC, uh, Daryl McDaniel's now writes his own comic books, and I've had the pleasure of meeting him several times and talking with him. He's very introverted, which I was like, "You are," and he said for him going on stage was. And he's always been a big comic book nerd, never talked about it. He was a straight A student, never, cause, you know, in hip hop, you're supposed yeah, to have a lot of speed, right? But he said it was like putting on an Iron Man suit of armor when he went on stage. And that was his onstage persona. And I'm the same way. I, I can talk, and I've, I have, I've talked to rooms of thousands of people and I have my presentation. I've already rehearsed it. I have the slides there. It's, it's really smooth. And for me, that no problem. But if I were to present to three people, I would be, you know, a mess. When I'm done presenting, I need to go away. My social battery is drained. Um, and that's what, you know, you can be an introvert and do extroverted things, but it's what comes with that. And so if I go to a conference, a lot of times I don't go out to the after party. I, I need to be in my hotel room by myself decompressing, you know, those sorts of things. So I don't know. It's just. I think part of it is I look at my son and I know all the things that he's been through um, in school and everything. And I almost like, how dare I not? Because somebody needs to be getting this message out for kids like him and for kids like me and kids like you um, who need these types of lessons. And so that's kind of an added stress on me. But I always say and I didn't come up with this saying, but, you know, I, I, I want to be the kind of adult that I needed when I was a kid. And that's one of the reasons why I became a teacher. That that's so powerful, and it, it fits. I think one of the things I I I'd seen that you had either written or said was one of the things that that really connected you to comic books is that we're all going through something, yeah. right? X Men, Batman, horrible horrible things going on in their lives, and they had the choice to either say, you know what, I'm packing it in, but they didn't. They tried to make the world a better yeah. place. So that that I think that speaks directly to your mission. Is that you do want to make the world a better place for for kids, including your own your own kids. Agree. Yeah. Well, when I saw you writing some some notes <laughs> down, did you have a question before we sign off? We've kept him long enough, I think. Yeah. Um. One of the things that I'm really interested in is because again we're in French immersion. All of our teachers, when we have to go up and present, are like, "Well, it's easier because it's in French," and it's like, "Well, if you do it in English, it's fine." And like they're and there's like some people who will absolutely break down if you have to get them in front. And it's always very challenging. But um at the end of the day, like after years of having to get up in front of a class and presenting like only French and being like, well, that's not the right word. Or like, oh, imagine this. It's a lot easier to present in English. Would that, so would that be like something that would have like helped someone present or would it just be your mindset on how you want to go up? All I can think of is like, mon dieu, je suis fatigué. Like, I don't have my kids present to the whole class. I don't do that. And again, when I first started teaching, I, oh my God, I used to have a rubric and it was like eye contact, evidence of rehearsal. And so like the kids would, would be reading and then they'd stare at me because they needed eye contact points. And I, I feel so guilty for doing that to those kids. But now like my room is set up where I have tables of three or four students. And so they become their own little community. And when they present, that's where they present. So instead of having like a week long stab me in the eye, like kids present every day, like it's, it's boring for me, it's boring for them and they don't care. Now when you're sitting with two other people, you can have conversations when you present and they can ask you questions and it takes away that social anxiety. If they do present, it is part of a larger group kind of presentation, but I still tend not to do that. And so it's, it sounds chaotic, but I'll be having like five people in my classroom present all at the same time. And so we can do our entire class presentations in a day or two rather than two weeks. Um, and I think it's a lot more meaningful for the kids. And the kids write a reflection piece and what questions did they ask. And the presenter gets to learn, too, because instead of me calling them out in front of the whole class, I kind of sit down with each small group and I get to have a more meaningful one on one conversation 
Um, so part of the new book that I'm working on is going to have a whole section on how to help the introverts in your classroom because I'm so tired of the extroverts being rewarded for being extroverts and we, we can't forget about the quiet kids. And, you know, if you're going to go up to present and it still happens to me, like you were saying earlier, it's about icebreakers. I am so careful in how I do those types of things because if I do an icebreaker as a 48 year old man, I, I don't know who the person's name is because I can't focus. The room, it's this buzz in my ears starting to sweat. And then I'm thinking about, okay, am I making enough eye contact? Am I not making enough eye contact? Do they see that I'm sweating? And it's, it's an awful experience for me. When I give presentations, I don't make people in the audience stand up and clap and cheer and do silly dances. And people like that and that's fine. But we also need to kind of look, I'm sorry, you just hit on a, on a, a topic that I'm very uh, passionate about. I don't know if I answered your question, Rowan, but no, I don't think it'd be any easier whether you're presenting in English or French or Chinese or, or anything if you are socially anxious. And so you could use um, a Flipgrid response and you could, you know, video yourself and you could then put it on a Padlet, which we've done. And so kids can listen to you present, but you're only presenting in your room to the camera, not to a room full of people. That's one way to do it. Or again, you can make a comic or you get all those sorts of things. So I get it. Part of life is you may have to do presentations, but I think there's ways to do that to not make it so terrifying. So how how do you assess that, Tim? And and when you started talking about a rubric and, and what you did, I just I just started to laugh because I have a love hate relationship with rubrics. Yeah. Simply simply because to me that really cements goal seeking behavior. Yes. And so if I put down and I started this when I first started teaching professional selling is one of the courses that I teach. And one of the things I'll tell my students is, you know, on average, in a large ticket item, and if you don't know the person, it's going to take you an average of 35 questions to get to know them. And so in the first, and it's a closed presentation, right? It's it's two people. And using this rubric, and what you get, no matter how much you spend talking about, how much time you spend talking about the quality of questions and that it needs to be a conversation, you get an interrogation. <laughs> and, and and the students are so interested in just I need to hit the 35. So the, the the questions won't even be connected. I won't even listen to your answer. I'll just nod my head and go on to the next question. So yeah. I, do you still use rubrics? And if you um, do, what do they look like? If my boss asks, yes, I am still using rubrics. But no, I don't because it, or it might be a research paper or it might. And if you say, all right, I need six paragraphs, I need three sources, for some kids, that's all they're going to do. They won't go above that, even though there's a rabbit hole to go down or what have you. And I think it actually restricts what students are capable of. So I agree with you 100%. So for me, the way that I assess that is they've submitted their PowerPoint to me. So I know what's in the PowerPoint with their sources, all those types of things. And I am going around each table and, again, listening. And I might only catch two minutes of, of a five-minute presentation. And I'm also looking for the other students, how they're assessing the first student. And so the questions that they're asking, the, you know, I, I really honestly don't care as much about the presentation itself. It's more about the research process. It's more about how they put it together. It's more about what they understand and as important, what the other students are taking away from it. So it's kind of a holistic grade. I've moved back to that, a holistic grade with a lot of feedback for me to understand that grade. I think that's the other side of things. When you don't have a rubric, some teachers will just put an A on a paper and the kid's like, well, why did I get an A or why did I get a B? So you, even though you don't have a rubric, you still have to give all that feedback and you really have to give positive feedback too. The kids shouldn't just get back a paper and said, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you did that wrong. It should also be, oh, I never thought about that. Or, And as a high school teacher, I'll throw a sticker on it. And oh my God, like teenagers love stickers. Like it doesn't matter how old you are. And there's things that we can do to make it a little bit more fun, even in the feedback aspect. So, uh, Tim, thank you very much. This was fantastic. Thanks for your time. You're a fantastic guest. So I feel like I've known you guys forever already, so it, it was nice. Yeah. Uh, we'll we'll stay in touch, and we'll, we'll keep up with what you're doing now. All right. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Ludicast. Make sure to visit www.ludicpedagogylab.com. That's L-U-D-I-C pedagogylab.com for more detailed information about Ludic Pedagogy and associated resources. 
If you're a practitioner of fun and would like to appear on the podcast, you can contact us at ludic.pedagogy at gmail.com or visit the website and contact us there. Until next time, remember, life is short. Make sure to have serious fun. Special thanks to Jeff Timischuk of Greenwire Music for composing the musical theme for the Ludicast. <laughs>